Welcome to the AWS TechCast. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dive into topics of interest. Hello, my name's Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 50 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And with me here for the 50th episode is the man who started it all some three years ago, Dr. Peter Stansky. Hello, Pete. Hey, Shane. It's uh, always a pleasure to be back on the show. And uh, this is a big 5-0 episode for us. Um, very, very impressive. It's really, really impressive. I had a bit of an interesting weekend. I went to see my parents and I opened up a few cupboards in my room and my old room, I should say. And I figure I'm now rich. Well, according to eBay. So I might be leaving you soon. How is that? I, I don't get it. You go home and you become rich. Uh, have you found like, you know, money buried under the floorboards or somewhere in the roof cavity? Kind of. Like, do you realize what retro computing is fetching these days? Not really, but I've got a bit of hardware myself. Uh, I'll be pretty keen to hear uh, what, the, what the street price of some of that hardware is. So in my cupboard, I was going through some of my old stuff. I had about 10 five and a quarter, 360 kilobyte floppy drives and 8086 with a CGA screen. I even asked a colleague if they knew about CGA. Mm-hmm. Blank stares here. So obviously showing my age. <laughs> I had two 10 megabyte SCSI hard drives from the late 80s. They are so big. They're like five and a quarter double height size. It'd probably hurt a small child if they fell on them. And like the crowning, you know, goodness, an all 32 sound card in all its ISA magicness. Wow, that's going back a while. That takes me back to when I owned a Gravis Ultrasound, my Amiga 500 with the uh, RAM expansion board, external SCSI drives. Wow, there is there is money in that, uh, in that old hardware. Yeah, so look, speaking of memories, today we're turning 50. Tech Chat turns 50. So mm. I started out as a listener of AWS Tech Chat, probably provided a bit too much on the constructive feedback. And before you know it, I think, Pete, you said, you know, if you think you can do better, come and give it a go. Yes. And now, uh, I always say, be careful what you ask for, right? So uh, you do. guess what? Uh, you may have just gotten your wish by uh, being uh, a co-host. Okay. So look, it's been a bit of a journey looking back. You know, early episodes, I had my training wheels on, but I think the numbers these days are speaking for themselves. You know, our numbers are growing and our reach is now maxing out the limit of countries in our publishing platform. All I can say is we're in over 50 countries. Did you think this would happen when you had this idea, Pete, many years ago? Not at all. I was just hoping to get a, a couple of cool, interesting uh, guests on the show. And uh, the first uh, folks on the show were really the, the two product managers for API Gateway um, and uh, for Lambda. So RJ and Stefano Bugliani. So uh, hello to you guys if you're still listening to the show. But uh, we have been growing uh, pretty much doubling every year from our uh, listeners. So guys, thank you for tuning in and keep on tuning in and uh, go tell your friends about uh, Tech Chat. Being data-driven, looking at the stats, here are some fun facts. You know, If we look at how you, the consumers, listen to our show, 53% of our audience is Android-based, 24% is iOS, and the balance is going to be like a web client. 
Now, this isn't a promotion for Android, but it harks back to the show. <laughs> this is a show for the builders and all of us. So, Pete, it actually may be time for you to switch teams. I'm going to wear you down here. So, you say leave my iOS platform and go to the Android. And, you know, I was pretty close to it a few times. Every time I do my phone upgrade, I do consider the Android devices. Um, but I have a whole bunch of Android gadgets that I do actually do some development on, and it's not iOS. So, uh, I'm kind of halfway there, Shane. Kind, we'll get you there. You will. So, on the, on the location front, you know, We've gone global with over 50 countries. The USA still makes up the bulk of our audience. You know, they are the lion's share with Australia, the UK, Netherlands, and India rounding out the top five. But we've also got some really exotic locations, Shane, like Laos, uh, Pakistan, Puerto Rico, uh, Israel, and of course, Poland, uh, my home country. And the list goes on. So, Jean uh, Dobry uh, to all the uh, Polish listeners. Uh, I hope you guys are enjoying the show. Exactly. And look, Really humbling to see this happening. And for those who write to us, a big thanks from Dallas through to India. You know, it's good to hear the tech chat voice. And we'll be getting lots of feedback. So, uh, guys, please don't hold back. Uh, we've been getting it via LinkedIn, via Twitter, uh, via our email. Um, bring it on. Uh, we're keen to hear what you like, you don't like, and uh, the things you want to hear more of. So, look, we could reminisce a bit more, but just like an IT deployment that's potentially maybe not going well, I'm never one to roll back. I like to fix the issue and roll forward. So here's to the first 50 shows, onward to the next 50. And by then, surely, they will have doubled the show's budget. Absolutely. And uh, as we said last time in the last episode, uh, zero double zero is still zero. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> Look, I've obviously got to speak to someone here. So today, episode 50, so a bit of full disclosure here. This show, as you probably are aware, is a labor of love. You know, Pete and I have day rolls. Pete, you're about to flee the country and this time not via Amazon Chime. But they let me escape for a week. And because of this, today we're going to be freestyling this a little bit more than usual. And look, uh, that's kind of how we roll around here, right? And uh, you know, we do have a bit of a, sh a show script that we tend to tr well, we try to follow. Uh, but overall, uh, yeah, let's, let's roll with it, Shane. Let's uh, bring on the show. Bring it on. All right. Just like riding a bike. Today, we're going to do a round of announcements for the month of June 2019 after our deep dive episode previously on CDK and RAM. So just like the normal process, on with the news. Come on, Pete. This isn't the early days. On with the news. <laughs> the news, the news, the news. Okay. Uh, so a couple of things here uh, that, that are noseworthy. So um, let's start with some price cuts that we're actually pre-announcing. This is a little bit different. Normally, we tell you uh, the price uh, cut has already come in, but this is a pre-announcement. Uh, and just to be clear here, um, this is not going to be available to you just yet. Uh, we are recording in the month of June, but effective August the 1st of uh, 2019, again, if you listen to the show in the future, the AWS config rules uh, will switch to a new pay-per-use pricing model, which will lower your bill uh, for the actual AWS config rules that a customer has in their account. So... Um, uh, speaking quickly here, just in case you aren't familiar with the AWS Config Service, it's a service that enables you to access, uh, rather, sorry, assess, audit, and evaluate the configurations of your AWS resources. Uh, and more so, it'll uh, continuously also monitor and record your resource configurations and detect any changes that take place uh, against a configuration drift. So it's a very handy service, Shane. Okay, so you're mentioning pay-per-use pricing. How is config actually currently being charged? So currently you charge on the number of active rules against your account in a particular region. And when we talk about uh, phone controls, we're talking about uh, these privileges and so on. And um, we have been listening to people's feedback. So again, effective August 1st, uh, you will be charged based on the number of AWS config rules that are actually uh, running evaluations 
uh, instead of the number of actor rules that have been set up in your account in that particular region. So this new pricing is designed to provide, uh, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, uh, all current config rule customers with a significant price reduction um, because the rules are, you know, um, on the charge for the evaluations. Yeah. So look, if you are a config user, take a look at the AWS config page and click on the pricing. As whilst this update isn't active just yet, there is a detailed explanation which compares an example with the current pricing model versus a new model. And on the uh, regions and AZ front, guys, uh, no real changes. Uh, so prior to the uh, the episode, um, but we still have 66 AZs, 21 regions and 12 more to come. This is availability zones, that is. But on the CloudFront side, we've had a significant bump up in the number of CloudFront edge locations, Shane. Nice. So yes, I see one of those edge locations are actually in our part of the world. Yes, indeed. And the rumors are true. Uh, the uh, last batch of edge locations went live on May the 7th. Uh, so we, uh, we've we had a month of uh, not as much activity, but in June the 18th, which was just the other day, uh, we announced seven new edge locations. So four of the new edge locations are based in North America, which are basically in uh, in Houston, Texas, two of those, uh, Hillsborough in Oregon, and Toronto, uh, Ontario. Uh, now, two locations were also added in Europe, in Manchester, in England, uh, in Zurich, Switzerland, a lovely city I visited many years ago, uh, and also uh, an edge location was added in Sydney, sunny Australia. And just remember, with each addition of each CloudFront edge location, it means your bits are going to get to your customers quicker. But inversely, you know, I was actually talking to a customer of mine, and as I was mentioning, the one drawback of adding edge locations is it can take longer to deploy your CloudFront distributions or Lambda at Edge functions. So, you know, take that into consideration. Indeed, and uh, you know, being being so old in Amazon years, um, I remember when we had uh, a rapid distribution. Uh, now it, it has increased substantially con- due to the actual number of edge locations. So you do pay that uh, homage to a change. Think about it twice before you hit the update uh, change button. But uh, I I digress. Uh, so to finish off the news, uh, summits, summits, summits. Um, the next summit that we're going to be at uh, is in Sao Paulo in Brazil on the 27th of June. And also on the same day, Osaka, Japan, another lovely city, um, is going to have a summit. And finally, we also then have um, both Cape Town, South Africa and the New York, USA summits in uh, on the 11th of July. So other than summits, there are other events to tickle your fancy. We spoke about these in past episodes, so I'm not going to cover them. Stay curious, stay hungry, and search AWS events in your favorite search engine, and there will be something, no doubt, to tickle your fancy either online or in your local geography. Now, the world is changing every day. Ten years ago, DevOps movement may have been somewhat niche. Today, it's a norm. And personal opinion here, I think we're going through the same movement with IoT at the moment. It's gone from something which was niche to now delivering real business value. An example here, gone are the days of reading sense of values for the sake of reading them and say performing maintenance, servicing by hours of use. You know, servicing by hours, that costs money in either over-servicing, taking machines offline, or perhaps under-servicing because, you know, you've let something go too long and you've got a breakdown. So some time ago, actually November 2018, we pre-announced a new service. I wonder if you're playing along at home, if you figured it out. Well, I'm not going to leave you in suspense. I'm referring to AWS IoT events, and it's now GA or generally available. And given we haven't touched IoT events on TechChat, I thought, why not? What do you think, Pete? Yeah, I think so. And in fact, um, 
I was actually at reInvent when that was announced, and I made the announcement on the launchpad in Twitch. So I do remember this very fondly, in fact. Uh, but look, um, when you think about uh, IoT, it's a pretty cool platform that we've got. Um, but uh, let's not assume that everyone here on the show knows all about it. So uh, let's level set on uh, IoT and uh, IoT events here because uh, these are some pretty cool, fully featured offerings. So uh, to recap on that, so our IoT offerings have been around for quite some time now, Shane, and it uh, has grown in maturity uh, and it's gone from strength to strength. We have multiple offerings in the space uh, and IoT events now is being another feather in, in our cap. So formally speaking, the Internet of Things or IoT is the extension of the Internet connectivity into pretty much everyday physical devices um, and everyday objects that may be scattered around your home or in your workplace or out in the street somewhere potentially. So this is fundamentally embedded devices, so electronics devices with internet connectivity, uh, and they come in a whole bunch of different form factors, and many of them potentially are sensors. And these devices can all communicate, interact with each other over the, um, the network, over the internet, and they can also be remotely monitored and controlled. And fundamentally, our IoT platform um, sees this uh, level of functionality for what we call the AWS IoT Core. And IoT Core really is uh, you know, is connected via a protocol called MQTT, also known as the Message Queuing Telemetry Protocol, uh, which is really a publish and subscribe protocol designed for low-powered devices that have essentially not a great deal of bandwidth or uh, CPU performance. Now, um, this core allows customers to create solutions uh, for essentially billions of devices. And uh, you know, which can send trillions of messages in a very secure manner. You know, I could keep talking about IoT Core for quite a while, but uh, as the name implies, think of it as it's the core of the AWS IoT platform chain. Uh, and fundamentally, IoT events. Um, so these events are, you know, simply patterns of data that potentially identify changes in the equipment. You know, the state of the actual devices. Uh, for example, things like if you have if you have a robotic arm being misaligned, there'll be sensor information coming through off the factory floor, or a motion sensor being triggered. Uh, you know, after hours in your workplace or perhaps at home. Uh, you know, we have lots of um, industrial companies like manufacturers, you know, utility providers, you know, companies that make food, um, you know, manufacturers. Um, and all of these organizations want to analyze the data that's coming off these devices and to detect the changes and also to respond in a timely fashion to the events coming from many different IoT sensors uh, and, you know, input that into applications that drive faster and hopefully uh, better informed decisions and deliver value to, you know, end customers. Exactly. And it's big business here. You know, I used to work for a food manufacturer in the past. You know, imagine if, you, if you're if you producing food at scale, and I mean at scale here, you know, if you can optimize your operations, just even a fraction of a percent, that could have tangible benefits in the form of millions of dollars. And I think that's the issue here. IoT Core is a great platform. Like it really is. It allows you to route those messages, but detecting events based on data from thousands of devices requires you to write code and evaluate data. This could be a Lambda function off a Kinesis stream, but it requires you to get your hands dirty. And if I'm being honest, probably really dirty. And what I love about IoT events is it simplifies this process. So my house is pretty automated. I even run a PLC. I'm nearing 120 inputs, and these inputs allow me to take some really good decisions. But it's hard work, and this is where IoT events comes in. I kind of like when I was you know, researching and learning more about this, it's kind of like, in my mind, how SageMaker is democratizing AI. But Shay, before you go on, you got to tell the listeners, what is a PLC exactly? PLC is a programmable logic controller. So think of it as an industrial-based micro 
controller, extremely reliable, lots of inputs, lots of outputs, speaks communication like, you know, serial, uh, Modbus in my scenario here, you know, various protocols Mm -hmm. and just extremely reliable, a a system designed to run things like from elevators through to uh, food processing lines, et cetera. You know, a PLC is probably at the heart of most modern industrial organizations. And you'd be surprised how many places you actually find PLCs in, you know, modern buildings, cars, you know, Shane's house, uh, all sorts of scenarios. Cool. All right. So with AWS IoT events, you can detect events like this at scale. So rather than myself having to write my own logic around what's happening, with IoT events, you can detect events at scale by analyzing a data, not only from a single sensor, which is still pretty cool, but you can do it to thousands of IoT sensors and hundreds of pieces of equipment under management in real time. So using events, you can create detectors that evaluate device data and trigger the common glue in AWS, which is a Lambda function, or potentially send a notification via SNS to do something in response to an event. Detectors can evaluate tens of thousands of input messages from devices every second, identify events when they occur, and trigger actions. So, for example, when a temperature change indicates that a freezer door is not sealing properly, AWS IoT events can automatically trigger potentially a text message to a service technician to address the issue. Which is pretty cool. So essentially what this means, guys, is that uh, you no longer have to um, wire up custom control logic or at least you know, uh, having boilerplate code or logic in those devices that can be. Uh, so this actually lets you uh, wire up things really quickly by you know matching events to conditions, to triggers and alarms, right? So Pete, let's talk through an example. You can access AWS IoT events from the AWS IoT event console or by writing code that calls the AWS IIT Events API. And there are various actions supported in the Events API. I took a look at this before from create, delete, list, put, tag, untag, and update events. But I'll say if you haven't used IIT events, the best place to start is probably in the console. So let's talk through how you would wire something up. Firstly, log into the console, and I will start by creating a detector model. I click create detector model to begin. I have options, kind of like Lambda Blueprints, if you're familiar with Lambda. And once you click through and choose your detector model, you are presented with an interface that you can drag and drop IoT inputs and wire them up to actions. So if you're familiar with, say, Visio or any form of architectural drawing program, it is pretty simple, just like that. You know, grab your inputs in, draw lines, join them up. So trigger logic is evaluated each time an input is received. So for example, perhaps you're measuring current So amperage or voltage, it's probably going to be milliamps being an IoT sensor. So current or voltage, and you want something to happen. When input gets received on the IoT thing, trigger logic is going to occur. Exactly. So if you want something to happen, guys, uh, when you design this and by doing your drag and drops uh, for the actual states and conditions, the, the trigger logic evaluation needs to hit a true condition. So if the condition is met, the model will then move to the next state, uh, just like a you know essentially a finite state machine. Um, so by making those changes to those actual states, you can move to another state, which can then initiate an event such as an action. Uh, and some of these actions actually include the, you know, there's a sending of an MQTT message to an MQTT topic, uh, you know, sending uh, an SNS topic, so a simple notification service topic, which can be uh, identified from an Amazon resource uh, name. Uh, you can also set a timer. You can, you know, set the timer, you can reset it or destroy it. Uh, and timers can be expressed essentially in m- different resolutions from seconds, minutes, hours, days, all the way to months, Shane. 
it's pretty cool. Yeah, timers are awesome. You can create some really good decisions based on timers. And the other cool thing is you can also set variables. You can set uh, increment and decrement values to your heart's content to represent the actual state and the changing conditions um, of that particular sensor potentially. So after you define your inputs and build your detector models, you can then publish those models uh, that your IoT devices can use and benefit from it. And my personal favorite part of this is that it's all visual, Shane. It's a WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. What you see is what you get. I haven't heard that acronym for a while. It is show 50. It's uh, meant to be a bit of a retro show, right? Yeah. All right. So really awesome stuff here. And in short, play I had with this. It just makes things easy. You know, in the past, wiring things up with IoT Core required for what I was playing with, a raft of AWS services. This does what it says it does. It makes things easy. The time to value or time to proving out a hypothesis just got a little bit easier. So just quickly, two things. Firstly, we mentioned Lambda above, yet the actions Pete just spoke about didn't mention Lambda. So remember, you can chain a Lambda function to an SNS topic. So if you need to invoke a Lambda function, and really who doesn't want to invoke and use Lambda? Everyone does. So you can have it as a subscriber to an SNS topic. And by publishing to the topic, your Lambda function will be invoked. Secondly, worth calling out, though, if you're familiar with our IIT offering, this should be a given, is that IIT events is stateful. Your model will react to the same input differently depending on the current state of equipment, such as running or off. And actions are going to be based on your conditional logic you assign to your input. So uh, the AWS IoT events is now GA or globally available, and it's available in US East Virginia, US East Ohio, US West Oregon, and also in Europe, India, Ireland region. And you can start using it today. And uh, I guess uh, that's an IoT bit, Shane. I presume we're going to pivot to something else? Uh, perhaps, but go on. Well, there's other cool stuff happening in the IoT space. Uh, so let me take a, a few moments out of your life to talk about uh, the BLE or Bluetooth Flow Energy Support, which has just landed in the Amazon Free Artos and a new MQTT library that goes along with it uh, that's also available and generally available in the Amazon Freetos uh, major build uh, 2019-06 which is pretty cool. So what that means is you can securely connect your Amazon FreeTOS devices using um, Bluetooth to AWS IoT via things like Android and iOS devices and use the new MQTT library to basically create apps that are independent of the connectivity protocols, whether they're using BLE or Wi-Fi, it really doesn't matter. And with BLE, uh, this, bring, this basically allows you to use uh, the generic access profile and the generic attributes profiles through a standardized API layer to create the applications that are really you know, highly portable across the Amazon FreeTOS uh, qualified devices. And uh, you know any other companion, you know Android, iOS, SDKs that integrate with AWS functionality. So it's a pretty cool add-on for those who are actually playing with, uh, I guess, microcontrollers uh, and using FreeTOS. And look, it's cool because you think about these microcontrollers, they're usually tiny in terms of RAM, compute, and energy consumption. This is actually quite a significant update indeed here because this allows these microcontrollers be tethered to you know these amazing computers that everyone has in their pockets to be able to connect, you know, back into the AWS cloud. So really, really cool. And it can also um, update your devices remotely, by the way, by using the over-the-air, the OTA updates over Bluetooth low energy, Shane. So uh, the new MQTT library provides an abstraction layer that makes it easier for you to use use it uh, independently of the actual different protocols. So it's a very cool IoT update you know, indeed. I hate to say it here as I love IoT, but are we done? You know, do you have any more things in air quotes, to talk about. I think I am all out of things, Shane. <laughs> I wonder if anyone got the IoT joke going on there. I am not a thing. 
You are not a thing. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't got one of those t-shirts. I need to get one. Our buddy Glenn Gore is uh, is well known for getting up on stage at some of the uh, summits and uh, having the "I am not a thing" IoT t-shirts. Very cool. Very cool. Okay, from IoT to relational databases, Microsoft SQL Server, to be precise. In past episodes of Tech Chat, we've spoken about always-on availability groups from Microsoft SQL Server. And if you recall when we spoke about this, the call was put out that it was available for a specific version of this popular database engine. Indeed. And look, it's been a while. I think it was sometime late 2018, around November, if I recall. And uh, you know, it was SQL Server 2016 Enterprise Edition, Shane. Pete, I'm impressed. You're keeping your finger on the pulse. So yes, Pete, you are right. And that was awesome, but I felt a little bit sad inside, you know, being someone who's used SQL Server for a very long time, that the latest MS SQL database engine 2017 wasn't supported. Well, now it is. So this feature is now available for SQL Server 2017, the latest minor version. So that's 14.00.3049.1v1 for the Enterprise Edition database engine. As for those who aren't familiar, Always On is an Enterprise Edition requirement. And I know we're doing this out of order and probably should have done the level setting first, but to refresh, if you're not familiar with Always On, Always On Availability Groups is more than just master-slave replication. So when you create a SQL Server database instance to run using multi-AZ on SQL Server 2016 and now 2017, latest minor version, of the Enterprise Edition database engine, RDS is going to automatically provision a primary database in one availability zone and maintain a synchronous standby replica in a different availability zone using always-on availability groups. And because it's synchronous replication and you are using a listener IP, so like a virtual IP, failover may be transparent to your application. You know, it really can be that fast. So pro tip here, if you have an existing multi-AZ instance of SQL Server 2017 Enterprise Edition using mirroring, you don't actually need to destroy this instance. Yeah, this is a pretty cool. It's a pretty cool hack, Shane, isn't it? When you uh, need to do this first, convert your multi-AZ instance into a single AZ availability type, and then basically reapply the multi-AZ flag against that employment. So, uh, you know, another tiny but somewhat, uh, somewhat useful update uh, for MSSQL RDS um, is also around a multi-file native SQL backup. You want to talk about that? Yeah, this may sound pretty niche, but to digress here, with SQL Server and NUMA architectures, you may want to improve the performance of your backups by splitting your backup files into multiple files with each CPU core being able to divide and conquer. Now, obviously, this may have or will have IO ramifications, but that's another story because obviously, you know, with more CPU load, being able to create these backup files at the same time, you are putting more load on your IO subsystem. But if you are interested in in this, hit up your favorite search engine and there are recommendations based on number of CPU cores. So story time done here, Pete. Back to you. What is the update around SQL Server multi-file native backups? Right, so the news here is pretty cool. So uh, RDS for SQL Server can now restore multi-file native SQL Server backups from uh, S3 to an Amazon RDS uh, Server database instance, which is Pretty damn cool, if you ask me. Uh, previously, we only supported native restores from a single file backup um, when migrating to, for example, Amazon RDS SQL Server. And now with this update, you can now migrate databases up to 16 terabytes uh, up from the previous five terabyte limit. So to do this, obviously, if you're restoring a file, you're going to be using a uh, uh, you know SQL Server Management Studio. So the process is the same for using um, 
uh, S3 uh, bucket name slash backup file name uh, to be pointed to for a restore from multiple backup files. So the backup file names need to have a common prefix. Uh, so if you queue up your virtual whiteboard chain for a second, it would look something like this. So imagine exec msdb dbo.rds underscore restore underscore database at restore underscore db name, give it the actual database name, and then provide at s3 underscore arn to restore from, and you give the actual arn, which is made up of the s3 bucket name and backup file slash asterisk. Phew, hope you guys can imagine that. So basically, uh, yeah, if you look at the documentation, uh, I highly recommend doing a cut and paste of that string. You mean your uh, explanation here wasn't good enough? Uh, I I think uh, I could do better. Take a look at the documentation, listeners. So look, a handy feature here, either if you're trying to restore in a hurry, you know, maybe you have a process that depends on backups being restored, or maybe you have really large backups, you know, so that's backups over five terabytes in size. So you've either got a ton of records or maybe a lot of cat pictures stored as a binary large object. I don't know. Do we, do we recommend so, that? Uh, I don't know about sticking too many blobs into your database. That, that's, that's, a, that's a recipe for, for bloat. We, we definitely don't recommend that. But I think maybe it was early 2000s, storing blobs in relational databases, it was a thing. It was a thing. Uh, definitely, yeah. It was a thing. There are lots of things that were things that are no longer things, and I don't think that's a thing. So should, just put it in the cupboard along with your, you know, three hundred and sixty kilobyte drives that you found uh, in your parents' attic. Do you think it'll be worth a bit of money, those blobs? Give it ten on? years, I'm sure it'll be worth something on eBay. <laughs> awesome. So look, as Pete said, check out the RDS documentation for more details. Uh, as there are plenty of examples on how to execute this in management. So studio. Shane, the next thing is really cool because again, we keep it in a Microsoft theme. It's about containers. So sticking with the Microsoft world, I had to have a play with this more just because I wanted to kick the tires. But ECS or Amazon Elastic Container Service has gone GA with support for running Windows Server 2019 containers. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. What we provide is an ECS optimized AMI, so Amazon Machine Image, which is based on the EC2 Windows Server 29 Amy and includes Docker 18.09 and the ECS agent 1.27. Containers in Microsoft Windows Server 29 feature a number of key container support enhancements, including a reduced container file size from about 11 gig, I had to laugh here, to as little as 3 gig, which is obviously going to help with the increased startup times, but it is definitely no alpha. So Shane, layers. is that a bit like uh, putting a blob in a database? Because it kind of feels like it. Ooh, pretty big and lumpy. It, it, it is, isn't it? Like, how do you spawn containers that are really that big? But obviously, you know, I think, Pete, there's going to be use cases for mm-hmm. this. So... I'm sure we'll be amazed what our customers do running Windows Server containers on In ECS. fact, why don't you send us a note uh, and let us know what you're doing if you are playing with it because I certainly played with the uh, pre-release you know, of the uh, functionality for Windows containers and they did feel a little bit lumpy. So uh, if you do find a cool use case, let us know. Really keen to hear about it. Cool. So creating your cluster with Windows Server 29 AMI-based instances enables support for Windows containers based on Windows Server Core 2019. LTSC, Windows Server Nano 1809, Windows Server Core 2016, Build 1803, and Windows Server Core 2016, 1709, and finally, Windows Server Core 2016, LTSC. So look, the uh, the Windows Containers instances use their own version of the Amazon ECS Container Engine, and on the Amazon ECS Optimized Windows Amy's, the uh, ECS agent runs as a service on the host. So unlike the Linux platform, uh, the agent does not run inside the container because it uses the host registry 
and uh, named pipes um, to basically communicate with the Docker daemon. So the uh, the source code to the Amazon EC container is available on GitHub, so you can go check it out. Uh, we encourage you to p- perhaps uh, submit some pull requests for the changes uh, if you would like to extend that functionality. However, we do not currently provide support for running modified copies of this software, just as a heads up. So you can view the open issues on the um, Amazon ECSM windows on our GitHub issues page. Uh, and the Amazon ECS um, Amy's that are optimized for Windows containers, uh, you know, uh, have a couple of different variants. Can we use Gitter here, Pete? If perhaps we were cool enough to use Gitter, we talked about Gitter the last show. Uh, I, I would, I would argue that I think we're, we're cool enough now after learning what it is. <laughs> awesome! All right, we can hang with the cool kids. So, some tech chat tips here that you should know about Windows containers and Amazon ECS. So. Tip number one, Windows containers cannot run on Linux container instances and vice versa. So pretty obvious here. To ensure proper task placement for Windows and Linux tasks, you should keep Windows and Linux container instances in separate ECS clusters and only place Windows tasks on Windows clusters. Which makes sense. You can ensure that... Kind of does, doesn't it? So you can ensure that Windows task definitions are only placed on instances by setting the following placement constraint. Member of open bracket ecs.os hyphen type equals equals windows, close bracket. Windows containers are only supported for tasks that use the EC2 launch type. So what that means is Fargate launch type is not supported currently for Windows containers. So currently you cannot throw us your containers and we will not run them just yet. Next, Windows containers and container instances cannot support all task definition parameters that are available for Linux container and container instances. For some parameters, they're not supported at all, and others behave differently on Windows as they do Linux. So for more info, check out the documentation. And I think a pretty important one here, the IAM role for tasks features use a credential proxy to provide credentials to the containers. This credential proxy occupies port 80 on the container instance. So if you use IAM roles for tasks, port 80 is not available. So for web service containers, you can use an ALB and dynamic port mapping to provide a standard HTTP port 80 connection to your containers. So for more information on this, see you know load balancing. And then lastly, the Windows Server Docker images, as we alluded to before, are large. You know, they're no Alpine Linux, so your container instances are going to require more disk space than Linux containers. Average size of Windows containers today is nine gigabytes per containers. Windows containers, Pete, who would have thought? Hey, look, uh, Shane, I'm sure someone out there will find plenty of uses for them. And, um, and you know, it's it's getting almost close to getting to the end of the show. So we better speed this up. So let's talk about security. And security, as we always talk about, is everyone's top priority, especially ours. Uh, so being informed uh, around security listeners, I hope you're aware that with the uh, security vulnerabilities that we've had in the past in the SSL version of the protocol, uh, it's worth probably having taking a bit of a look and trip down memory lane here. So since uh, SSL's first iteration way, way, way back in 1995, uh, we've had lots of new versions of each protocol, um, which has been released to address vulnerabilities, and they support stronger and stronger and more secure cipher suites and algorithms internally. So um, as uh, industry is currently at TLS 1.3, which was recently released in 2018 and approved by ETF, which is the Internet Engineering Task Force, right? So uh, it's well well worth looking into that. Yeah, and look, as you mentioned, various vulnerabilities over the past few years from Beast, Poodle, Drown. I think we love a good acronym (laughs) here, don't we? You know, we've had 
industry experts recommending disabling all versions of SSL and TLS 1.0 for a while now. But the current initiative, I think in some minds, is being driven by PCR compliance because as of June 30, 2018, all websites need to be on TLS 1.1 or higher in order to comply with PCI data security standards. That's DSS. I think I need to stop here, Pete. What happened to the acronym challenge from the last episode? Did you do I it? I did. In fact, I did it today. I had a huge induction day for a, a whole bunch of new uh, new managers in a business. Uh, so for my day job, uh, I was like in swimming in acronym city, Shane. So having a lot of fun with that. But uh, listen, uh, we digress here. Uh, so let's come back to the topic. So as a best practice, everyone, um, you should configure your service to support the latest uh, protocol versions to ensure that you really are using the strongest algorithms and ciphers that are out there. Uh, but equally important, it's also important to disable the older versions um, as, a, as a, I guess, a balancing mechanism uh, because, you know, when you uh, establish those connections, sometimes the ciphers can be actually requested to use the older versions that have, uh, you know, known vulnerabilities. Uh, so these are these are essentially downgradable attacks uh, and, uh, you know, hackers can actually force connections to your server to use the older versions of the protocols that do actually have known vulnerabilities and exploits. So this could actually leave you, uh, you know, your encrypted connections, you know, fundamentally open to things like man-in-the-middle attacks and uh, many other attack uh, vectors that are actually out there. So the news here is you can now enforce a minimum TLS version and Cypher suite through a security policy for connecting to your Amazon API Gateway custom domain. And this is just for custom domains. And you may be using custom domains for various reasons. And now one of those reasons should be the ability to enforce a minimum TLS version. Now, this is going to be able to prevent those downgrade attacks that Pete just mentioned and really improve the security posture of your application you're exposing through API Gateway. So how do you do this, Pete? So when you create a custom domain in the API Gateway, and by the way, everyone loves API Gateway and I'm a big fan, uh, you specify the security policy for it. So uh, if you look at the documentation for it in more detail, you can also um, uh, set uh, the policies that actually apply uh, to the uh, TLS settings when these are being set up. So fundamentally, uh, you can change the minimum TLS version by specifying in the policy the new TLS version. So TLS 1.0 or TLS uh, you know, 1.2 uh, in a security policy parameter, uh, which, uh, and remember, take it, this takes up to about 60 minutes uh, for the updates to be completed. And remember, you know, because uh, some of this is actually using CloudFront uh, behind the scenes, as we talked about earlier, more Edges, slightly more uh, latency. So do give yourself about an hour before those things are fully propagated. Exactly. And look, once done, you can test this with a client, you know, on your device and take a look at the headers and how things are being negotiated. So worth noting for the security pros out there, we are aware that TLS 1.3 is the latest and greatest at present, but given it's not even one year old being released in August of 2018 and that balance between security and compatibility of devices, which becomes an issue, we will look to add TLS 1.3 as a minimum to API Gateway in the future. Yeah, look, uh, just one more thing to add here. Remember that API Gateway is often used as a proxy uh, pass-through to basically connect uh, to another backend origin server. And that can also use TLS with multiple different levels. So uh, it is actually a defense mechanism uh, amongst you know multiple different ways of actually uh, you know uh, rerouting your connections from uh, the client consumer via API Gateway, via other TLS levels uh, into your origin server, which is perhaps your uh, your web server in some cases, or a Lambda function. Pete, I think we're done. The clock is flashing red. We are out we of are time. Indeed. And uh, we're almost at the end of episode 50. Wow. Fantastic. Okay. So today we covered a round of updates that occurred in the month of June of 2019. We started the show introducing you to a new service that has gone GA. 
AWS IoT Events, which is a new fully managed IoT service that makes it easy to detect and respond to events from IoT sensors and applications without the traditional heavy lifting of building, I'll say traditional IoT applications, and brings managed complex event detection service to our already buff IoT suite. Indeed, and look, on the IoT front, we also um, announced BLE, which is a Bluetooth support, which has landed in Amazon Free Atos, and also the new MQTT library that goes with it, uh, which is now generally available um, in the uh, the release. And with this update, you can now securely connect your uh, you know, Amazon Freeatos devices that actually are using BLE uh, into the AWS IoT uh, service via Android and iOS devices, as well as using the new MQTT library to create apps that are pretty much independent of the connectivity protocols used underneath. We then spoke about uh, additional features for MS SQL Server on RDS, especially for uh, 2017 and 2016 support for Always On. Uh, And we also let you know that you can now do massive restores uh, from S3 of uh, your SQL database uh, backups, uh, which are much bigger than a five terabyte chain. Awesome. ECS for Windows containers has gone GA, so prepare your blue screen of devs. Only kidding. So we now support ECS clusters running Windows Server 2019 containers. So if Windows containers are your thing, take a look at ECS. Lastly, with API Gateway custom domains, you can now enforce a minimum TLS, that's Transport Layer Security version, and Cypher Suite through a security policy, allowing you to further improve security for your customers. So before we go today, 50 episodes young, I want to thank you for kicking this off, Pete, and bringing me on board. Hey, Shane, you're welcome, and uh, thanks for being a, a great co-host. And, uh, you know, we're big 5-0 in this episode. How scary is that? Uh, who would have thought that uh, recording in the back room of the Sydney Summit only four years ago would uh, get us to so many subscribers and so many listeners? So, guys, thank you for being part of this journey. Um, please keep us abreast of uh, what you want us to do, uh, how to improve the show, uh, and uh, you know, tell us some cool, interesting insights because uh, we've been certainly enjoying the fan mail. Listeners, keep us honest. Feedback is always welcome at awstechchat at amazon.com. And just like Batman, join us again in a few weeks' time to which we'll be back, perhaps from an even more special location and perhaps with an even more in-depth show. So until next time, everybody, bye for now and uh, we'll see you in episode 51. Bye for now. Signing off, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.